or last week, there's some flyers back on the table. Um, you can put that on your refrigerator just as a reminder that you can be praying. How is God stirring your heart? Maybe it is simply just being a prayer partner for one of our adopted uh, families that have uh, invested in adoption. Maybe you just come alongside them and say, hey, how can I pray for you as you're going about this or in the process, whatever that might be, uh, to come alongside them and pray for them. So that's what we're asking you to do this month. Again, we're going to come back at it next week as well, just some different sides. And I, but I found that video extremely helpful, just kind of what we're asking you to do this month as you're praying through some of these things. Again, if you've got your Bibles, Exodus chapter 34. Hear God's word, starting verse 6. This is just kind of the taster for us to see who our God is this morning as we dive into the text. Said so the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving inequity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the inequity of the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And the response to this God, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. What I find so fascinating about that text, text is it follows... Israel's great sin. Literally, they just built a golden calf, and yet, who is God? God slow to anger, abounding in this steadfast love. That's your God that you serve this morning, and the same God as we find in our text that we have access to through Christ Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. John 16, starting in verse 16, hear our text this morning. It says this, a little while you will see me no longer, and again, a little while you will see me. So, so some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I mean by saying a little while and you will see, not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you will lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her, house is, uh, her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself, he loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. 
I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, uh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered him, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Well, I don't know about you, but we celebrate Christmas early in our household. You might think we're crazy, but we already got the Christmas tree up. We already got the Christmas music playing, and we've already watched Christmas movies. In fact, just this week, we watched one entitled The Christmas Calendar. I don't know if you're familiar with Hallmark films or Christmas films in general, but they all kind of follow the same premise. There's a girl who's in love with or falling in love with the wrong man. And we all know this to be the case as we're watching it, but yet she doesn't know this. But yet we, we continue to watch, to watch her hopefully fall out of love of this man and find the man of her dreams. They're all the same. A woman who's in love with the wrong person, and eventually she finds the right one. And there's some twists and turns to these, but generally they follow that same premise. Well, this Christmas calendar movie that played a couple years ago followed it to the T. The one twist, though, was there was this advent calendar that the leading actress got, and she got this calendar, and it was supposedly the calendar that brought her grandma and her grandpa together. And she decided that everything that she pulls out of this calendar was going to lead her to the right man. So the second day, she pulls out this Christmas tree, and what would you know? She runs over this guy's Christmas tree as it falls off his car. She drives right over it, and it's this beautiful man who's a doctor. She says, this must be the man of my dreams. Because the next day, she pulls out this nutcracker. She goes to her niece's play, and what would you know again? This man shows up to this play, and his daughter is dressed in the nutcracker. Again, a true sign that this is the man of her dreams. But everybody watching in knows this man is crazy, that he is rude, and he is not the man of her dreams. But the man of her dreams is her best friend that has been by her side the entire time. Well, eventually she figures this out. She breaks up with the man, but she gets so angry at this advent calendar that she throws it, or she tries to get rid of it, she tries to sell it, but yet it comes back into her life. But there's one clip at the end of this movie that is telling. It goes back and rewinds this whole thing, and it begins to show us that, yes, this advent calendar was right. She just was interpreting the signs wrong. Christmas tree was not pointing her to this doctor, but there was another Christmas tree as she went about the Christmas tree lot with her best friend. The nutcracker wasn't showing that it was from this daughter, but there was a nutcracker that uh, her best friend worked at with her. And as it beginning to replay, as corny as this movie is, it teaches us an important truth. That sometimes signs are easier interpreted looking back rather than looking forward. Sometimes it's easier looking back on things and being able to interpret it after the matter than rather than looking forward. Disciples are learning that the hard way in our passage. Jesus is trying to prepare them for what is about to come. 
but yet they're confused. They're not grasping all that he's saying. He's trying to get across to them that, yes, he's going to be betrayed, and, and yes, he's going to be crucified, but yet, in all of this, they're not grasping any of it. Because, again, signs are easier interpreted after the matter than before. So here they are in this scene trying to ask each other the question, hey, what is Jesus talking about? And, and Jesus says, hey, I'm leaving you, but that's when the questions begin. Peter says, where are you going? John begins to say, hey, which one of us is going to betray the other? And they're, they're, they're trying to grasp what is actually taking place, and they have a whole lot of questions. In fact, the question we see in our passage this morning is what is Jesus talking about that he'll be gone for this little while? John, do you know what he's talking about? P Peter, can you grasp what, 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 is, what does he even mean? And yet not one of them is able to grasp what's going on. Eventually there are going to come a time in which they'll be after the fact, after the cross, in which they'll be able to understand all of this, but that time has not come. So they have questions. And yet in our passage, Jesus is having to go back to them to explain what exactly, what, what does the cross mean? What does this betrayal lead to? How does it actually lead to something greater? Something that's not sorrowful, but is transformed to joy. In fact, we see it immediately. We see their confusion. Again, look at it with me, what it says in verse 17. It says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. Some of his disciples said to the, to the uh, another, what is it that he says to us a little while? And you will not see me, and again a little while you'll see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. You almost have to chuckle at that last line. They're very honest. We do not know what he's talking about. We're confused. It, it doesn't make sense. And yet they're very honest in this, but as we see in the text, they're not honest with Jesus. So yes, like I said before, there's this comic, comical picture that's going on. Imagine Jesus, he's, he's kind of interweaving into the streets within Jerusalem and all the disciples in the back, trying to not allow Jesus to catch on. They're whispering to themselves, what is going on? D did you catch it, Peter? Nope, I'll ask another. John, did you, did, did you catch it? No, no, let me ask Andrew. And, and all of a sudden, not one of them is grasping what is taking place. They don't know what Jesus is talking about. And yet Jesus is having to go back and explain and explain and explain and explain. And yet in many ways, I, we, we, we should understand that they're not grasping this. Because who can grasp on... On the first time around, the idea of the Son of God being crucified. Like you, you really grasp it. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the one who's going to the cross, but before that takes place, I'm going to be betrayed. By one of the twelve. And then the Son of God is going to end up on the cross? Like who in their wildest dreams is picturing that to take place? Nobody. So, so I think, we, yes, we have some compassion in our hearts to understand where they're coming from because it's not making sense to them, and I don't think it would make sense to us as well. They're not grasping it. So we begin to see that, that they ask these questions, but this is where the text begins to stand out to me. 
says in verse 19 that Jesus reads their mind. Je- Jesus knows their questions. They don't even need to tell them to Jesus because he's grasping that they're not, they're not, they're not paying attention. They're not, they're not able to grasp all of what he's saying. So then he goes back and he begins to, to speak again to them. And he begins to answer the very question they have. Verse 19 Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I mean by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For that joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you will have sorrow now. But when I see you again, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. What does he mean when he says, I will be gone for a little while? Well, I think the vagueness is there on purpose. I think there's a vagueness here because he's speaking of this time of a little while. And, and in the context of the passage, yes, we understand it to be the time between Jesus' death and his resurrection. But I think the ambiguity within the text is given to us on purpose because everything that is said between that time can be applied to the time afterwards on Jesus' leaving us to his second coming. So we can apply the application of this text in two different ways. So I think that the the vagueness of the text is given to us on purpose. But notice what he says. He turns to his disciples and says, you are going to meet a time that you're going to be mourning. You're, You're going to be full of lament. But that time is going to be transformed into a time of joy. But but catch it here. He says they're going to be meeting this time of sorrow. Specifically, again, is speaking of the time in which Jesus is, has been crucified and he's been buried. And you look at that time and you say, what, what are the three marks that really led to them being full of, of mourning and lament? I think it's three things. It's a sense of loss. It's a sense of this world is unjust. And it's a sense that evil seems to have won the day. When you look at those three things, this is what's causing all the questions and why they'll be full of lament. Sense of loss, a sense of injustice, a sense of the evil has won. In fact, look at it, as you look at these disciples, a sense of loss. They understood loss in this moment. And Jesus is trying his best to prepare them. He's trying to tell them, hey, yes, I'm leaving you, but, but I won't leave you alone. I'm going to give you the third person of the Trinity living inside of you. You're not going to be left alone. But even with that reality, Jesus wasn't by their side. Then their very best friend left them. They watched him crucified upon the cross. So yes, they understand loss in this moment and they have questions. Questions of the injustice of it all. Can you imagine watching the most innocent man crucified upon the cross? The man who didn't even have a hint of sin within him. And how unjust and how angry they probably were in this moment. 
Because everybody around them, you think, would feel a sense of injustice as well, but that wasn't the case. Many times in this world, we'll experience just what the disciples felt. All those around them weren't, weren't getting upset with the injustice. They were actually rejoicing. And then their last hope, Pilate. That maybe Pilate will get it right. Maybe Pilate will, 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 will be able to release us back our Jesus, but yet instead of releasing Jesus, he goes right along with the crowd and participates in the injustice as well. So yes, they understand in this sense it seemed like evil had won the day. And when you experience loss, when you experience injustice, and when you experience the world seeming like evil is having the last day, you got some questions. Why, God, are you allowing this to take place? How much more can I have to endure? Why, God, won't you just stop it if you say you love us? Why are you making us go through all the heartache? See, I think we can understand and, and feel what the disciples were feeling. Because in our day and age, we will feel those same things. We will feel a sense of loss. There's been times in which loved ones will be taken away. There'll be times in which our health will disappear. There'll be times in which we'll lose our dreams and our aspirations. And we'll have some questions. And then when you add injustice of the world on top of it, when you, when you see that the systematic injustice or injustice personally in your life, it will seem like evil has, has won the day. And you will be begging and asking God those same questions the disciples did. Where are you? Why, why, why are you allowing us to, to endure? Why don't you just rescue us from this? Well, why so much pain? These, these questions come and arise in our lives. But yet for some strange reason, I, I find some encouragement within the text in, in verse 33. He turns to his disciples, Jesus, and he doesn't hide the heartache of this world from us. He says in verse 33, tribulation will come. It's as if Jesus is preparing us and saying, hey, I understand this life is going to be hard. There's going to be times in which you will weep and you will mourn. There'll be times in which you, you're, you're full of lament. And you, we begin to see how fallen this world truly is. Yes, this marks this time between which Jesus is, has left us and the time in which he will come again. There are some similarities between our story and the disciples. And yet Jesus says it's going to be hard. He says prepare for it. But the greatest part of this text is he says, yes, your life will be hard, but the time will be transformed into a time of joy. He says, yes, your, your time of lament is coming, but yes, that will not last, but you will experience great joy. See, that's what he's trying to get us to understand. And what he's doing in this text is he uses an illustration to, to, to explain this to us. He, he uses the illustration in verse 21 of a woman who's in labor. I find this a fitting illustration because Jesus uses this as well in to explain the last days. But notice what he's saying here. He's saying that, 
As he turns to the disciples, he, he says it uh, in, in verse 21. He's describing that, yes, there'll be labor pains in this life, a time of lament, but yet they'll be transformed into a time of joy. He says it in verse 21. When a woman is given birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. If I'm the disciples in this moment, I'm thinking, Jesus, could you have come up with a better illustration? Why not stub a toe? It's painful, but you can handle it. Why does he pick the, the most excruciating pain that, that anybody can experience to, to experience the sorrow in this life? I mean, if I'm the disciples, I'm explain anything else, use a different illustration, but he doesn't. He uses labor pains. And all you ladies understand, that's how he describes what the disciples are going to experience. And again, like I said before, he uses this in Matthew chapter 24 to describe the last days. In which we understand scripture correctly, the last days begin when Jesus disappeared and they'll continue on until he comes back. So he describes how hard this life is, but don't miss the point. Labor pains, they do not last. And the very thing that brought you so much pain a child, is the very thing that brings your greatest joy. He turns to the disciples, he says, yes, the very thing that's going to bring your greatest pain, my crucifixion and death, is the very thing that's going to bring about your greatest joy. You seeing what he's getting at? He says, the very thing that brought you so much sorrow is the very thing, Jesus' death, on the cross, that brings your greatest joy. Because it gives access to the Father. And, and as you're looking at this illustration, that's what he's telling us as well. Yes, there's coming a day in which sorrow will come, but the great fantastic truth, because he, when, he, when, he, when he turns and says, yes, this, this thing with Jesus' death brings your greatest joy, he says, nobody can take that away from you. What a fantastic truth. That you and I, that, that assures that, yes, these times of mourning in our own life, they will not last. Why? Because of Jesus' death and his resurrection. It guarantees he's coming back for us. It guarantees that our eternal joy is coming. And the same thing he told the disciples is said of us. That, yes, there'll be some hard days in which we have to endure. The great news of the gospel is that time is short. And a time is coming in which everlasting joy will be our story forever. But now he turns and he begins to explain what is this joy to us. The only way that we have that promise is through the, the death of resurrection. Because Jesus conquered death. Because he became our ransom for our sins. Now eternal joy becomes our future. But the joy that he speaks of in this text is immediate. So, so notice as he's talking here, it's important to catch this point that, that the sorrow is, is it's, it's not just displaced. The sorrow is transformed to joy. Again, the, the, the illustration he uses is not just displaced. It's, it's transformed. The very thing that brought the pain, the child, is the very thing that brings the joy. This is going to be important as we begin to read the rest 
He says that he gives us two reasons in why we should be full of joy in this day in which our sorrow is, yes, transformed to, to, to joy. He tells the disciples the first reason that we should find joy is because they're understanding after the matter of the fact, they're going to understand the messianic mission so much better. So he says it again, what, what, look at what he says in verse 23. He says in verse 23, in that day you will ask nothing of me. In other words, their questions will stop. Because they'll begin to understand what took place, why it happened, where Jesus went. Then notice in 25, I have said these things to you in a figurative way. An hour is coming when I will speak to you in a figurative sayings no longer. But I will tell you plainly about the Father. In other words, what he's saying is it makes a whole lot more sense looking back than it does looking forward. He says there's coming a day in which this puzzle piece, you're going to be living post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, and it will all begin to make sense to you. Yes, he says the Holy Spirit's going to come and remind them of Jesus' words, but we begin to see that the puzzle piece that makes Christianity make sense is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, Scripture doesn't make sense without this piece. That's why Paul would turn to us and said we should be the most pitied of man if Jesus didn't rise from the, from the grave. So he's beginning to say, hey, th- this is the puzzle piece. After the crucifixion, you're going to begin to understand what all of this is speaking to. And it begins to make sense. Reminded of the story of C.S. Lewis. He walked into a pub and these men were discussing what, what makes Christianity so unique. He came up with a whole bunch of different answers, and yet C.S. Lewis didn't stumble at all. He walks in, he catches their conversation, he says, you know what makes Christianity unique? Grace. In a translation, what he's saying, what makes Christianity unique is the cross. In fact, that's why I began with this story of Exodus 34, because that is the operating system of Christianity. Israelites didn't have to earn their way back into good walking with with God. They literally are worshiping a golden calf. And yet God says, I am a God who is abounding in steadfast love. I'm a God who's marked by graciousness and mercy. In fact, you begin to see it. He says in verse 25, he says, hey, this is the puzzle piece. This is what makes it all begin to, to, to make sense. And you begin to understand that. And it should have implications in how we do evangelism. Because if if the cross is the puzzle piece, the resurrection is the puzzle piece that makes it all make sense, should we not center our evangelism back on Jesus and the gospel? It answers all the questions that this world needs to, 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 to answer. Who is God? Well, it's Jesus. Because he's the only one who conquered death and rose again. How do we get in relationship with this God? It's through Jesus. Because he paid the price on our behalf upon the cross. Whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. It centers back on Jesus. So so when we look at this, this text, he's trying to get them to understand that it's going to center on what is going to take place next. And that's what's going to bring their greatest joy. Jesus is no longer going to have to explain things in strange ways. No, he's going to say, hey, this is, this is my mission. I went to the cross for a purpose. And after the matter, you know those questions that they had? Loss, 
injustice? Looking like the evil has had the last word? The cross answers those questions. Loss? For those who have faith in Jesus Christ, it's not a loss. We're just to see you later. The, the injustice of it all? No, it's paid upon the cross. And we're reminded that, yes, judgment is coming. Seeming that evil has won the last word? The cross reminds us. It's coming a day in which every knee will bow. Seeing how it all centers back on the cross? This first thing of this idea of bringing you joy, yes, it centers on the message that, hey, after the matter of the fact, it all begins to make sense. Secondly, it points to his meteorological work with him and in, 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 in what it speaks to in prayer with the Father. Look at what it says in verse 23. It says, in that day you, will, you ask me nothing of me. Truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that, so that your joy may be full. And in verse 26, on that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that, uh, that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself, he loves you. Because you have loved me, and I have believed that I came from God, I came from the Father, and, uh, and, and, have, have come, and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father should be noted that there are two different verses, uh, two different verbs stated in verse 23. There's two different verbs in verse 23 for the, for the English word ask. I simply tell you that because the first one in verse 23, it's an ask of questions. Jesus says that you'll no longer have to ask me questions. The second verb we find is a request for something, a thing. Which, I don't know why they didn't put a period there when they were, uh, the, later on was they began to put uh, verses and kind of making the distinction between it. There should be a different verse between verse 23. So 23 verse A, verse 23 verse B really is a different topic because it shows us by the two different verbs that are used. Which means, tell you that all for the sake of saying, he's changed subjects. Now he's going to talk about Jesus being the mediator between him and the Father, or between us and the Father, and what does that look like in prayer? Remember, he's already spoken to us that in verse four, in chapter 14. He says, hey, when you ask of me, when you ask in my name, I will give it to you. And here's the problem, though. There's this sense when we hear that, we begin to picture this Jesus as being the mediator between us and the Father differently than what we should. He's saying, hey, I, you never ask me anything right now, which should make sense to us because his, him being the mediator hasn't taken place and it won't take place until his glorification. But he's saying after the matter of the fact, though, here's our problem. We picture prayer to be like God the Father in this house with the door shut. We get on the phone and we got to call Jesus and then Jesus translates it to the Father. It's kind of how our view of how we look at Jesus being the meteor. He's saying that's not the case at all. He's saying between, because of the cross, what has taken place is that Jesus has opened up the door. That that's what it means that for him to be the mediator. Which means that we now have full access to the Father. He's seen in this passage, he's saying, hey, you speak to the Father, and the Father will be the one who gives it to you. And the line that I think stands out to us, or should stand out to us, is it says the Father loves you. And there's this sense to think that the Father is so distant. 
Specifically what he just talked about in John 14. Yes, this relationship between Jesus and, and the Father. It's, it's so close. It's built off of dependence. It's built off of obedience. It's built off this, uh, this oneness. And you're looking and you're hearing that and you're thinking, well, how, how can I have that with, with God the Father? And then Jesus brings up the Holy Spirit and you're beginning to say, yes, I can have that with the Holy Spirit, but what about the Father? And there's so this idea that we, we, we struggle to understand that God loves us. I mean, I, I, my, my father, my own relationship with my father, it might be different for you. I understand that to be the case, but I never questioned my love between me and my father. I always knew he loved me. I mean, I could do, I'd do some bad things, but yet I, I never questioned his love, even in the midst of the sin. You know, for some reason, when it comes to our relation with God, to think that that's the case, it's, we, we struggle. We struggle, we, we think we've got to do something differently. We think we've got to knock on a certain amount of doors, and that's how we're going to earn God's love. Again, the, the, the difference between Christianity and the rest of the religions is you've got to work, you've got to work, and it's built within our system to think we've got to work. In fact, have you ever whispered to yourself, God loves me. Is it, is it easy to whisper? And did you feel it? I think so often, man, we struggle with that. And the text says, he loves you. He loves you in your failures. He loves you in your doubts. He, he loves you when you're questioning him. He loves you. In fact, what should stand out to us this passage, and we're going to see in, a, in just a second, is, is Jesus is explaining this, this great profound truth that disciples have access to God the Father. That, that, that God the Father hears them now and the door is wide open. What's so strange in the text is seemingly that they could care less in this moment. In fact, <laughs> what it says in verse 26 or actually, it says this, uh, verse 26, I'm not saying this, that I'll ask the Father on your behalf, but the Father himself, he loves you. But then in verse 29, when they're hearing this, look at the response. Jesus just told them all this profound truth. Just got done telling them about the access they have. Look at there. Oh, now you, you, you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. It's almost a humorous response. Like, are you catching on the reason why they now believe? It's all because that Jesus read their minds and answered their question for them. And you're thinking, really, that's the case? That it took you this long to believe that, yes, Jesus is sent from God, and it's only because he began to read your mind? wasn't because all the miracles he performed earlier. It wasn't because he's telling about this profound relationship. He and the Father are one. And yet you got to love Jesus' grace in all of this. He turns to him in this moment and how disappointed he had to be. It's like a, you're teaching, you're teaching, you're teaching, and yet they still have blank faces and they're getting excited about something that really is not the center of it all. And he turns to him in this moment and he says... Do you now believe? You're, you're so caught up 
You're, you're, you're so caught up in this idea that now I'm speaking plainly to her. I'll, I will speak plainly to you. And, and yes, that, that you have now this sense of belief. And he's saying, hey, there's coming a moment. Which he says next, you're going to be scattered. Your belief is as strong as you think it is. It's not, it's not as strong as you actually believe it to be. Peter, you're going to deny me three different times. Disciples, you're going to be scattered in your own homes. I'm going to be left alone, but I'm not alone because the Father is with me. You can almost catch the disappointment in his voice. But don't miss his grace as well. He's turning to him and he's saying, hey, you're going to be scattered. And I can understand that, right? And we think we have a strong belief. I mean, we think we have a faith that can withstand all the hardships of life, but yet when the sense of loss comes, when the loved one disappears, when the health disappears, when we're struggling with aspirations and dreams that aren't coming true, how strong is your faith in that moment? I mean, I, I get the disciples. I mean, we're fallen creatures. We struggle, but catch it. Catch what Jesus says next to this group who's not getting to a group who says, who's literally going to deny Jesus. He turns to this group. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart because I have overcome the world. that you may have peace. Should be an oxymoron to us. Here's a literally a, a, a group who's about to deny Jesus and yet he's telling them they can have peace. That's the grace. That's what the cross brought. That yes, you can, you can struggle in your doubts and your questions, but still have peace because of what Jesus did on the cross. You see the, the great news in this? He's saying, hey, you are mine and nothing can take away that joy. Nobody can take away and snatch you away from my presence. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it unites you to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is deposited in you. He's saying, yes, you'll struggle. Yet, Yes, you'll go through some questions, but you can still have peace because of what I did on the cross doesn't make sense but that's how Christianity works you will have tribulation friends those tribulations they make you question but he says you keep your eyes focused upon me because the great news is I overcame the world and because I overcame the world man your destiny your eternity is set. Do you see the great news of it all? He's poured out his grace. God, he loves you. Philip Yancey, he tells the story uh, of this woman who realized that she could make more money giving away her child on the streets than she could make in a week working herself. She's telling this story about how broken she is as she's literally selling her child to these men. 
And these church people come up to her. Why don't you go to church? She turns to him in this moment. She says, why would I ever go to church? They just would make me feel worse about myself. Great news of Christianity is she has an open place in this place. Because we understand the depravity of our own hearts. And if she simply just turns to Jesus Christ, that she'll be forgiven. The great news is the same for us. And we've all done some horrible things in our lives. If we haven't done the thing, we've thought the thought. And it separated us from this great, this great God, this holy God. But God loved you enough to send his son to die in your place. And if you simply turn to him, ask for forgiveness, he will, he will completely forgive you. Repent, turn away from your sin and turn to a loving God. That's what Jesus is talking about in this passage and trying to get his disciples to understand. Yes, you will have tribulation. But I have overcome the world. God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful in the midst of our hardship of thinking that we got to earn our way back into your presence. They remind us that that's not the case at all. All we got to do is simply turn to you. Ask for your grace to be poured out upon us and your promise is that you will pour it out. So God, be with your church. As we sing this last song, the idea that, yes, Jesus is better. It centers on you and what you've done on our behalf. Oh God, would we thirst after you. And we pray that you would stir upon our hearts, that we would leave this place with great smiles on our face, understanding that, yes, the God of the universe he loves us so deeply. Pray these things in your son's name.